Patience, patience, love is patient. Uh, now that I have become a father again, I have become extremely professionally uh, versed in Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> uh, and this is one of my favorites, one of my favorite scenes. Uh, the, the one that this is the one that Disney did. Uh, not that, but anyway, these, uh, just love these old, uh, these are the older ones. Uh, Pooh, uh, visits rabbit in search of honey and eats every drop of honey in rabbit's house. Uh, he gets so fat that he can't fit out the door. So as he tries to get out the door, uh, he gets stuck. And so this whole segment of the, the book that A.A. A. Milne had written. Uh, and, of course, if you know that every every character in Winnie the Pooh is patterned after a per- certain personality. Uh, you could be a Pooh or a Tigger or an Eeyore or something. But uh, <clears throat> So poor Rabbit has to have uh, Pooh's backside facing him for a long time. So as uh, what happens is... Christopher Robin comes and says, well, we're just going to have to wait for you to get thin again. And, and then they pull him out. That's at the end of the, this one's uh, the, the honey tree. Uh, and then it, after he gets pulled out, he gets stuck in a honey tree again. So anyway, uh, you know, this is about patience. That was just an example of, that I had thought of. They have to wait for Pooh to get thin. He has to sit there and, and do nothing, and he hates it. Um, but it turns out, of course, that patience is, in this case, on poor Pooh, it's forced on him, um, and at times it is on us as well. But there's more to patience than just waiting. Uh, of course, when it comes to love, we are to be patient with others, and that's always with agape, is always dealing with others. And, how, you know, when it comes to being patient with others, one of the things that we have to think about is the timing upon which we secure their betterment, their welfare, and their blessing. What we're always after with others is the betterment of their lives in reference to God. You know, it's when Jesus came into the world, he could have healed everybody. He could have made everybody super rich which would have made nobody rich, by the way. But anyway, you know, it, he could have given gold and jewels and perfect health, and he could have, you know, kicked the Romans out of Israel or whatever the people wanted him to do. But what he did was he gave life eternal, and there was only one way to give that, and that was through his cross. 
before he gave that life, he taught what it was. He showed, he modeled what it was. He showed what it was. He taught what it was. And in doing so, he showed us what that life is. And, and that life is for others. Um, you know, if you're like me, is hundreds of questions just kind of flood, flood your mind that why would God do this? What in the world is God about? You know, who is he? <laughs> Almost, you know, why is he like this? And we're just grateful that he is. That life is about giving to others. And I say, well, wait a minute, life must be about self. But it's actually not because life centers on God, the creator of it. And that's why it's about others. With God, it's about others. And with us, it must be as well. But with God, you know, God is not lacking anything. right? He gives, and he's not less. You know, when we give, if you give money, your bank account is less. When God gives, he's the same. And therefore, life, eternal life, is unmovable, unchangeable. It's, and this is a word that the New Testament uses, it's pleroma, it's full. That Greek word, Paul, you know, the Gnostics love that word, and Paul used it right back in their face for describing, you know, what God gives to us. And I don't think we, we really understand that until we're in heaven and we're like, oh, this is full, I get it. Like, we kind of have a glimpse of it. And then God, you know, God says, look, you're complete in me. You're full in me. You don't have to, like we talked about yesterday, you don't have to protect anything. I have you. I have made you full. Now, be like me and give. And you'll experience what eternal life is, which is agape love. So when we're thinking about others, it's not just waiting. It is waiting. Patience is waiting. But it also has the, um, the insight into the lives of others in which you really do care about them in that you want to better them. And timing actually becomes pretty important. You know, the, the, I don't have to, the cavalry, I always mess it up with cavalry, the cavalry's coming, but what if it comes too late? Right? That's a prime example. Now, you know, somebody gives you a glass of water, you know, and I say, I was, I was dying in the desert yesterday. Today, I'm, I have enough water, you know. There's, there's a timing on things. If we care about others, there's a timing on as to what we do that's the best for them, not for us. And generally, for us, that best timing interferes with our own personal desires. And God says, you want to get rid of that. Do what you do for them. Because you're full. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13. Of course, and let's open up in prayer and let's be grateful to God for his word and his insight and grateful for his grace. Um, we don't get this right all the time. 
that we're not always doing it right all the time, but He's patient with us. So with humility and reverence, let's pray. Our great God and Father, You and You alone have made us just so wonderfully full. It it is amazing, Father, what You have accomplished for each of us. It is also amazing how limited we are in our understanding of it. That's evidenced by the fact that we get anxious and worried and angry and afraid We pursue the wrong things when we have everything in You. You have made us. You've given us eternal life. You have made us complete. So, Father, as we turn to Your Word again, we ask that Your Spirit would enlighten our hearts to the truth of the matter. And the matter is that through Jesus Christ our Lord, in His sacrifice on the cross, we have been made complete. We have your life, eternal life. You have imputed it to us. We have your righteousness. We have the Lord's righteousness. You have imputed it to us. You have forgiven us. You have reconciled us. Jesus has propitiated your justice. We are atoned for. And therefore, Father, we lack nothing. May we, Father, rest in you and have the courage to love with the love that you have given us. Let us remember, Father, that it's not our love. It's yours. It's in us, in every born-again believer, because it's a part of your life. You have given us your life. Therefore, we have the love poured out in our hearts, as your servant, the Apostle Paul, states. So, Father, through your Spirit, enlighten that heart in each of us. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. So, love is patient. Love is kind. Verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. In this passage, we've completed what love is not. We've done all the knots. Uh, we could do them deeper, of course, but time uh, affords us to move on. And I think we get a grasp of it, at least. Uh, and what this shows us, with starting with not jealous, does not brag, and so on, and that goes all the way to uh, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, altogether they show us that agape love is not self-centered but God-centered. And uh, that's a good way to summarize it. Love is not self-centered. We are completely out of the picture or out of the center. And God and others are put in the center. It's a good exercise to turn the knots into positives. And we kind of did this yesterday. And just to review it, if we take the knot starting with uh, is not jealous... Agape loves when others prosper and weeps when they don't. If someone is hurting, even if it's our enemy, even if it's just that they hurt, do we rejoice over that, which is tied to rejoicing in unrighteousness? 
Agape does not. Agape loves when others prosper, weeps when they don't. It's not jealous. Agape boasts in the Lord. Is there anything to boast in? The Bible says there is. In the fact that you know the Lord or that you boast in the Lord. Not that you know the Lord like more than other people. That is not it. Agape does boast in the Lord, doesn't brag. Agape is humble. It's not arrogant. Agape behaves appropriately to all people in all circumstances. Does not act unbecomingly. Agape seeks God's and God's blessings for others. It doesn't seek itself. Agape does not guard itself. You know what? There's no self to guard. That's what agape understands, so it's not provoked. Agape forgives and sees others as the objects of God's love. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered for everybody. Agape longs for others to live in God's blessings and weeps when they suffer for not doing so. And they suffer because of their own bad decisions. Do I rejoice over that? Well, it depends. Agape doesn't. Agape longs for all to be blessed by God. And if they don't, I mean, can a person change in a minute? (laughs) I know that they can. I remember the very moment I became born again and saved, my whole life was changed. It happened in a moment. Anybody can change. Do we long for them to change? Or do we long to put them down to press harder? Agape longs for others to live in God's blessings and weeps when they suffer for not doing so. And then, finally, rejoices with the truth. I just put, I put it with the rest because it's, it's linked with doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Therefore, agape is a student of all truth. Agape is a voracious learner of all truth. The wall, because self is out of the picture, agape longs to know everything that God has revealed. And when that thing is uh, revealing or puts a spotlight on the fact that I've got some, my thinking is wrong, or what I thought was true about a particular passage or doctrine is wrong, I love it. Right? That's what agape says. Oh, thank you, Lord, for the change. Agape loves to be chastised. Because agape wants to be closer to God. It wants to be more mature. And yeah, being chastised or disciplined by God or corrected by God or reproved by God is painful to the flesh, but not to agape. Agape longs for it. Show me where I'm wrong. Can you imagine such a person? (laughs) Show me where I'm wrong? Yeah. I want to know what's right. And I know in myself, I have, am I perfect? No, so therefore I have biases. I've gotten some things wrong. I don't know all the scripture, so there's a lot of, there's some ignorance in there. I want all of that corrected. That's what agape wants. See, but when self is in the center, you're guarding self. You're guarding pride. You're guarding ego. And what you don't want is to be corrected. What you don't want is to be shown that you're wrong. What you don't want is to be revealed as weak. But when you have agape, 
this guy is weak and he is strong. <laughs> and that's I'm fine with that completely. You know, which is easy to say. We have a wonderful thing about God is that he tests us. Isn't that great? He puts us through various, James puts it in James 1, 2, various trials. Various means there are many different kinds. And all to show us where we need help. Or where we need correction, where we need strength, where we need faith that we don't have. Plenty of trials. So when we say, yeah, you know, I know I'm weak. And then God's going to throw something at you that's going to show you're weak. Are you still rejoicing? Over your weakness? And so Paul, Paul, first, Second Corinthians chapter 12. I rejoice in my weakness. That's when he said, God, take the thorn out of my flesh. God said, uh-uh. The thorn is there to show you something. It's one of those trials. So what we just read, consider the person whose heart is so ruled by God's love. In Ephesians 3.19, no that we are, this is Paul's prayer, that Paul prays that we know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. What in the world does it mean to be filled up with the fullness of God? There's only one way to find out. You've got to love as he loves, and then you'll find out. I suppose someone who has it can try to explain it to someone who doesn't, but I, I doubt it would, I, I would think it would only go so far. That just as Paul does, but Paul in this, when he tries to explain it in that passage in his prayer, he says, I want you to know the length, the height, the depth, and the width. I always get them out of order and <laughs> forget whatever. Uh, all of that, I want you to know, right? It's not, a, it's not like a real detailed description. It's just what? It's huge. Length, width, height, depth. Huge. That the love of God. So, in 1 Corinthians 13, we have a context, and we haven't really talked about that yet. In the preceding chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul has striven to suppress their ideas of what spiritual gifts are for. Uh, Corinth was blessed with spiritual gifts. There's a lot of, it seems, is the place that Paul talks about speaking in tongues and prophecy the most. And it would seem that Corinth, a very cosmopolitan city, a very uh, populated city, a, a huge trading uh, center. It, it, Corinth has two separate ports. It's, it's an isthmus. I can never say that word. But, it, you know, it's this thin isthmus. <laughs> That has a, they actually built, I think it was Nero who actually tried to build a canal or to get from one port to the other. So, to, you know, there's two ports. And instead of going around the horn there, which was kind of dangerous, the ships had come to one port, take the ship apart, hike it over to the other port, put it back together and sail off. You say, wouldn't it be better to sail around? Not if the weather's going to destroy your ship. Then you got nothing. Uh, so, so there's a lot of trading, a lot of people coming from the east and the west anyway. Maybe that's one of the reasons why they were so gifted with spiritual gifts. And having those gifts had caused them not to serve one another, but to have envy 
and vanity and discord and jealousy. Love is not jealous. A complete lack of patience. Love is patient. Boasting and bragging in the assembly, interrupting each other. Love is patient. When others were speaking or doing their, giving their prophecy, others, other people in the congregation were interrupting them. Others were yelling out in their gift of tongues and it was a madhouse. And all because they saw their gifts as a means of status. I have the gift of prophecy. Sorry you have the gift of tongues. Or sorry... Oh, wow. Joe over there has the gift of helps. What a loser. He doesn't do anything but like take out the trash. Good for him. We speak in tongues. And, and, and it, was, it was a cause of great problems. So, Paul says, look. He start, in chapter 12, it's gorgeous, right? Variety of ministries, variety of effects. There's one Lord, one Spirit who gives us gifts. He tells them unity that I can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. We'll look at that in a second. And then in verse 31, look at 1 Corinthians 12:31. He says, and it sounds like Paul's just given in to their, well, we'll call it shenanigans, and he says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. Well, wait a minute, Paul. They're, that's what they have been desiring. It sounds like Paul has given into their way of achieving high social and spiritual status by gifts. But of course he's not. Why would Paul do that when he just said, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Go back to verse 24. God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member who lacked. Right? That's the the low status. Right? Getting through the whole scripture. This is the poor. Who did Jesus eat with that the Pharisees were so upset with? The sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, those in the lower, the very low status of society or stratus of society. God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. See, that's, well, he hasn't explained it yet, but that is agape. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. What is that? A complete lack of jealousy, of envy. All right, so Paul has dealt with this. Get rid of the envy. Get rid of the jealousy. You have thought that spiritual gifts are for your own personal elevation when that is not what the gifts are for at all. God gave gifts to the church for what purpose? And he says it here, to serve one another. So why would Paul say, again in verse 31, earnestly desire the greater gifts? The Corinthians have been earnestly desiring the greater gifts. But Paul, as he has often done, is using a rhetorical technique of sarcasm to really bring it to the surface. You know, when somebody who has been a seeker of greater gifts reads this line, they're 
eyes are going to open. Their interest is going to uh, increase. And then they're going to get the boom lowered on them. Paul does. Paul says, don't stop seeking the greater gifts, providing that you know what greater means. What are the greater gifts? Well, some, and some say, well, uh, it's got to be apostle. Is Paul saying that they should all desire to be an apostle? That would be just stupid. It's ludicrous. Of course he's not. He's getting at them. He's writing to those who have a desired this, and he's using the same language to pique their interest. The greatest are not those, uh, sorry, the greatest are not those that minister or, uh, to the status of self, but those which serve the good of others and build the community. Just as Jesus said, the greatest of all of you is who? Your servant. So, of course, Paul understands that no one can obtain gifts by their own desire anyway, right? Because the Holy Spirit gives them as he sovereignly wills. But Paul is after something much more important than the identity of the gifts themselves. Paul is after the desire in the heart of the person who has the gift. Desire the greater gifts. The greater gifts are the ones that serve the most. Which gifts serve the most? Well, maybe I guess you could say apostle. Is it pastor? Well, I don't know. It depends on what job the pastor's doing, I guess. But uh, hey, let's put it this way. What spiritual gift serves the least? And you can't really answer that question, can you? Because they're all designed to serve. So if someone has the gift of administration or help or... Uh, pastoring or teaching or whatever of the gifts. What are they all supposed to do? It is actually this desire to serve as the function of every spiritual gift. And for that reason, the desire of the greater gifts would be desire to serve the body. And, and he's saying to them, look, which gifts would serve the most? And if they scratch their heads, they'd have to say, well, I guess they all do, and they really do. Uh, and so Paul here is obviously not telling them to desire a different gift than what they have. What he's saying to them, using their own language back in their own face, is that whatever gift you have and whatever ministry you have and whatever effect comes from that ministry, serve others. And then he says, look at verse 31 again, I will show you still a more excellent way. So desire the greater gifts, desire, the, the greatest thing is to serve, so desire the gifts that serve the most, and I'm going to show you a more excellent way, and we quickly find out what that way is, which is agape love. So in the context of a bickering, envying, uh, uh, divided, in conflict congregation, Paul has actually set them up with their own behavior of using spiritual gifts to get ahead of each other uh, to describe to them what agape love really is. And he's saying, see what you're doing, what you're doing, what you're trying to achieve with the things that God has given you. 
are not the things that that are not the purpose of the things that God has given you. They're not the purpose of it at all. You have received. They have the gifts. It's obvious that they are speaking in tongues. They are prophesying. Some of them are healing. It's when you read the letter, you say it's obvious that they are doing so. So they have the gifts, but they're using the gifts in the completely wrong manner for the wrong purpose. And you know, you and I have doctrine in our souls. Right? We don't speak in tongues, but we have a spiritual gift. We have doctrine in our souls. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We have, we have our spiritual lives. We're born again and saved. We're forgiven. And we can use all of that in the wrong manner. And then Paul gives him a double whammy. Because now he really has them. The greater gifts are the serve, to serve. The more excellent way is to love. Therefore, Whatever gift that you have, you must serve others in love, and then you will have the greatest gift, so to speak. And then he says, if I speak in tongues, in the tongues of men and of angels, it's 13.1. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels that don't have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I spoke with the tongues of angels, some have actually stated that they can do this. To me, this is just Paul saying something that's impossible. But let's say that you could. Again, the Corinthians wanted greater gifts for spiritual status or social status. Imagine if someone walked into the assembly and said, I talk to angels. What would the congregation think? There's the leader. He's the head guy. He's the greatest. Everybody shut up and listen to the angel speaker. And then Paul would say, do you have love? You might as well be a gong. What you're saying is meaningless. If I have the gift of prophecy, again, another gift, and know all mysteries and all knowledge. Does anybody know all mysteries and all knowledge? Not even the prophets did. And if I have all faith, does anybody have all faith? No. So as to move mountains. Let's say someone comes into Corinth and says, see that uh, Acropolis that was in Corinth has a pretty big Acropolis like uh, Athens does. Say, I just moved that thing into the Mediterranean. It's gone. They'd be like, oh, right. Come on in. Come to the head of the class. You know, you're the greatest. But Paul says, do you have love? You've moved mountains with your faith. We've all seen it. Do you have love? He says, if you don't, you are nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned, and there are those who did that, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. So you see, God, uh, Paul here, or God, has set us up beautifully. Within the local church, within the Christian community, there can be a many gifted people who don't have love. And when they don't have love, they don't work well together. They don't accomplish anything. Everything that they do is a lot of noise, but it's just a gong. Everything that they do, it may look great, but what are they accomplishing? And Paul would say nothing. And that then sets us up for the first one. So again, we've done all the knots. And today, and I, you know, I, I figured we'd only have enough time for one, and of course it's true. Love is patient. 
So the things that love are in this list, there's 15 items, all of them verbs. So they're points of action. Love is patient, kind, and then at the end, it bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. So those are, and, and rejoices with the truth. So we lump that together with with the others. But so we'll look at love is patient first. And you know, patience. I mean, is that ever a lesson that you're like, ah, nah, I don't need it. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> I, I've completely conquered the patience world. Yeah, that'll never be true. Never. So patient here is the Greek verb makrothumeo. Uh, makros means long. It's one of those compound words, which Greek has a lot of. So does English. Uh, macro means long and uh, me, uh, sorry, uh, mone means to remain. So, no, no, no. Sorry, sorry, sorry. That's hupomone. Uh, thumos means to be passionate. Uh, could mean passionate longing. Thumos could also mean wrath. Uh, it means, there's another Greek word, dioko, which means uh, lust. And you could lust for good things or bad things. Uh, thumos, you could be passionate for good things or bad things. Uh, here, obviously, it's passionate for a long time with others. So, long passion is why uh, the King James in, in the older English would call this word suffereth long. I think that's what it says in the King James. Love suffereth. <laughs> that's like Isthmus. Uh, love suffereth long, suffers long. We could define it as long-tempered. Instead of a short fuse, you have a long fuse. The reason why I don't like that is because, you know, eventually the fuse does go to the bomb. Right? So when you say, I'm long-fused or I'm long-tempered, all that means is that eventually you are going to blow your top. It's just you're going to take a long time. Uh, there is no allowance for blowing our tops here at all. So the proper definition of it is to wait patiently in reference to people. I say in reference to people because there's another word where we kind of know, you've heard it a bunch of times here, hupomone, and that means to remain long under. Hooper is under and mone means to remain. But it seems, it bears out actually that in the New Testament, hupomone is used for patience and endurance in circumstances. Whereas this word in the noun macrothermia is used for people. And pretty often, you know, almost exclusively, I think, macrothermia or macrothermeo is used for people. Uh, certainly, patience and endurance is demanded in both circumstances and with people. Um, sometimes you get the person and the circumstance that you have to be patient with. Right? There's the person who's not cooperating, and the circumstance that's really hard, and then you're going to need both words. You're going to need to be a hupomone macrothermia <laughs> if you're going to pass the test. So um, we must think about the right timing that makes for the best possible outcome for another person. Love, says Paul, waits patiently. Love deals patiently with another person, even an enemy. And so it recognizes that, see, it's not just me, all right, I'm going to be patient and I'm going to wait 
for what I'm going to say but or what I'm going to do. But actually, as agape is in, in every case, it's looking for the betterment of another person. And therefore, I'm looking to what is it that I must do or say or not do or not say at what time is for your benefit. And when you, you say, you know, think about that. That means I have to really think about it. And it means I have to really care about the other person. And that's why with agape, I don't, I don't often use or I don't use the word impersonal, although that applies at times. That you have to be separate and distant. Sometimes you have to separate from people. That's between you and God. Um, but you know, for for some, they've taken that impersonal word and used it exclusively, and that they don't involve themselves in anybody's lives nor care about another person. And that's not what agape is at all. Agape does care. But we also know this. People have to make their own choices. Like I can be patient with a person the way that Christ is patient with all the people he was with. Did they all accept him? Did they all come around? When he's in the Sanhedrin... Not opening his mouth, talk about patience. Did they all come around? No. With Pilate, did Pilate come around? No. But some did. We don't know why that happens or to whom. Now, we have to consider the real need, therefore, as God would see it in others. And I have to emphasize that, as God would see it. You know, what would God want in their lives? And think about that. We would say, if you, the next thought in your head may be, well, why doesn't God just do what is necessary in their lives? Right? Couldn't he to everybody? Couldn't God just take care of the situation? What does he need me for? Well, first off, he doesn't need you. But uh, what he has done with the church has invited every one of us to participate in his plan of redemption for the world. Gives me chills just thinking about it. God has invited each one of us to participate in his purposes. We, that's, you know, uh, the word fellowship is also means partnership. Um, we partner with him in doing the work here on earth. That he desires. Now if you're going to do that work. You have to do it just like he does it. And that's why. If, if we say alright you know what. I'm going to help you God do this. Except I'm going to do it in my own way. God's like well thanks for getting in the way. Thanks for messing it up. Now I have to go around you. But with mature agape love. God who is the potter molds the clay into a vessel of honor. First Timothy, and Paul writes that we become a vessel of honor that is useful to the Master. And to be useful to the Master, you've got to love like He loves. To be useful to the Master, you've got to be patient like He is patient. And so, that's why, that's why God doesn't do it. He could do in that person's life, he's given us the opportunity to do it. And if we mess it up, 
Well, God's going to give that person what they need. He's, you know, he's inviting us to be a part of it. That's really something. What's more valuable to do in this life than to do God's work or some other work? Right? What are we taking with us into heaven? What is what will be known uh, forever? The things built here, the work done here, the material things that we've accomplished. None of it's going to last. <clears throat> so now, we also might be tempted to start with, well, why is patience important? And what are the benefits of patience to me and to others? And you've jumped off the starting line and you missed a big part of it. And that, that's easy to do, which is why I wrote this point, because I started doing it. Uh, as I was developing this, I'm like, all right, let's talk about how patience benefits me and my soul and my brain and my body and how it benefits others. And God was like, wow, you missed the most important part, which is the simplest part. Agape love is patient, period. If the benefits happen or they don't, you are still patient. Exactly right. You must be this because love is this and God is love. And you have God's life. So we have to say to ourselves, God has given me eternal life. That eternal life loves with agape love. Agape love is patient. I am patient. How's it going to work out for them? I hope good. I don't care. I mean, sorry. I do care. (laughs) There's the impersonal part coming out of me. Whatever, loser. I'm patient with you. Whatever. (laughs) Uh, No, we care. We have to. But, you know, they may accept it. It may change their lives. I have peace. people have been people have changed my life. I think about this. There's a number of faces that just jump up immediately of people who have been so impactful in my life, who have been patient with me. But the one who's been patient with me the most, obviously, is God, as He has been with you. We should have been smashed like bugs long ago, but He waits and He waits and He waits. And it, uh, this is an added thing, because as you just maybe start to get it, after God has been patient with you for 40, 50 years, and you're finally getting it, and you're like, wow, I think, I think I can do this. And you, I think I'm going to give my whole life to him, and you do. God says, don't forget where you came from. He says it to Israel all the time. I just read through Deuteronomy. I'm reading through Deuteronomy now. I'm almost done with it. That... And I've read through the Torah the last couple of weeks, and it's just over and over again. Don't forget that I delivered you from Egypt. When he starts the Ten Commandments, he doesn't start with the first commandment. He starts with, I am the Lord. I am Yavah Elohim who has delivered you, freed you from Egypt. That's how the Ten Commandments start. Remember, you have been redeemed. When you go into the Promised Land, don't forget where you came from. And with that, when you start to get mature, don't forget that you were once very immature. And the reason why you need to remember that is so that you can be compassionate to those who are weak. Don't forget. 
So the right timing plays a huge part in securing the welfare of another. We have to think about that. There's no, you know, what is the right timing? That's, that's you and your wisdom to figure that out. And you might get it wrong, but you'll get better. Uh, this word is used in the Septuagint, Proverbs 19.11. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook a transgression. A man, Proverbs 19.11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger. That's the Hebrew word that's translated macro through meo. In Ecclesiastes 6.10, we haven't seen Ecclesiastes in a long time. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. This, in chapter 6, Paul, uh, Paul Solomon starts to write out other Proverbs. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. And go to 1 Thessalonians 5. I have to squeeze these in. First Thessalonians 5.12. Hopefully we remember that. I'm like, hey, I remember this verse. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, not because of their personality, not because of who they are, but because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. <laughs> exactly. Everyone. Yeah, some are easier than others. Uh, in James's closing, he exhorts his readers to patience. Go to James 5, 7. James 5, 7. He uses it like he uses the verb and the noun here, uh, and this is just as he's closing his letter. Uh, Therefore, be patient. And if you remember, he's writing to believers who are really messing up the spiritual life with lust, with desire, with evil intent, with friendship with the world, on and on. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, but being patient about it until he gets the early and late rains. I find that kind of funny because what's he going to do? Make the crops grow quicker by his anxiety? But I can understand things, you know, things don't look dry. As a farmer, you get anxious. He says, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Who's the judge? The returning Christ. Remember, for believers now, all of us will stand at the judgment seat of Christ to be recompensed for what, we, what deeds we have done in the body, whether good or bad. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured, hupomone. 
You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings and that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So uh, James here, uh, you know, as he closes, he's saying, look, be patient with one another. Don't complain against anybody. And the Lord's coming back. That means that you don't have to be patient forever. There will come an end to this. The Lord's coming back. And know also that when He comes back, not only is it over for us, but also He's going to judge us for our deeds. So keep that in mind as well. Now when you start thinking, well, why is the Lord taking so long to return? And you're being impatient. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Why is the Lord so patient with history? And there's a reason, and that very reason you and I have benefited from greatly. What if the Lord came back in 1965? I wouldn't be alive. I wouldn't have existed. What if the Lord came back before you were born? 2 Peter 3, verse 8, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but but for all to come to repentance. God is patient. He's patient with you, and He's patient with the world. It's now almost 2,000 years since the death of Christ. The rapture has not occurred, and you know. So we see why here that God is His care is saving souls, calling many sons to glory. Now, in a similar way, the writer of Hebrews. takes the same line, and we're going to, for the sake of time, skip that one. Uh, he uses Abraham as an example in Hebrews chapter 6. Abraham waiting for, right, God told him, you're going to have a son. And Abraham is all freaking out, I don't have a son. And God says, you're going to have a son, be patient. Uh, and according to the New Testament, Abraham was patient. We read in the Old Testament, we say, well, was he really all that patient? But we'll give, it, we'll give it to the New Testament that he was. Go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 29. What about someone who owes you a lot, who has hurt you? Let's say you have the ability, uh, or some circumstance arises so that you can get your revenge or get back what you is what is owed to you. This is the parable of the servant who is forgiven, and then he sees someone who owes him a, just a little bit of money compared to the amount that he's forgiven. And this fellow slave, look at verse 29, so his fellow slave fell to the ground and pleaded, began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I'll repay you. It's word for word exactly what the other guy said to his master when he was forgiven. Forgiven of 
if I forget the number, something like $3 billion in today's money. And this guy owes him 100 bucks, roughly. And it's the exact same words. You know, of course, Jesus does this on purpose, the exact same words. Have patience with me, I'll repay you. So what is the Lord saying to us here? How much have you been forgiven by me? Now, forgive others. Forgive them. But they're going to get away with it. No, they're not. I control everything. Vengeance is mine. You have no idea what I'm doing in their lives. Do you care about their benefit? This leave them to me. Forgive them. All right, now to Luke 18. This is a bit of a, a change here with just a few minutes left. Now this one we know from our uh, study on prayer. And this is persistence in prayer. Now, the um, the word macro through meo is used here, but not for people. It's used for the Lord and His waiting, His patience in giving you what you're praying for. Okay, so you pray. That's why a lot of people quit praying. We studied this verse when we studied prayer, right? We pray. I say, Lord, give me this. You don't have to hold your hands in a certain way. You don't have to hold your hands at all. I say, Lord, does it count like, bam, get it every time? No. So look at Luke 18.1. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. See that? So this is about prayer and not just prayer, but not losing heart. Another, and why do people people lose heart? They quit praying. In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God nor respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection for my opponent. For, uh, for a while, he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because of this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming... She will wear me out. Bravo, lady. Um, Got to advocate for yourself, especially in our modern world where the service industry, the medical industry, the, uh, the uh, legal system is, uh, has gotten less customer uh, service-wise, I guess. But now, first off, don't overthink this. This is one of those passages that every time we read it, I think we try to overthink it. Just do it. Too many rationalize it away and don't persist in prayer. I can think of a few reasons why the Lord has chosen to do things this way with us, but I can't confirm them. I can only say, look, okay, Lord, you told me to cry out to you day and night for the same thing, and I'm going to do it. And now the ball's in your court. You have to fulfill your word. You said this. You said it. He was telling them a parable to show them at all times in verse 1 how they ought to pray and not lose heart. You said it, so therefore I'm going to do it. 
and now you must come through on what you have said. What is the rationalization? Why does God need to be pastored? First off, why does he wait? So look at verse 6. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. He doesn't repeat it. But what did the unrighteous judge say? She is going to wear me out. Now will not God bring justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And And will he... So here's your macrothermia word. Delay long. That's the word. They don't translate it patience in the American standard. But will he be patient? But that doesn't fit, right? In English, it doesn't make sense. But will he delay long? Will he macrothermia over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. Now, there's only one thing we can say about this. As much as the, the reality of it grates against our systematic theology brains, it doesn't make any sense that God should be bothered. Does he feel bothered? I doubt it. I mean, it's, just, it's a parable. But he says, keep at it. And therefore, our own persistence in prayer is akin to patience with God. It's very difficult, at least for me, to understand the real reason for our persistence here. But for many, unanswered prayer causes them to quit on prayer. I just read about it. Some uh, The guy at Hillsdale College uh, just sent out a blog about how C.S. Lewis was, when he describes in Mere Christianity, I think, or one of the other books, that when he was a kid, he prayed and didn't get what he wanted, so he was very. He tried to be more sincere, he tried to be more faithful, and then he prayed and he prayed and he prayed, and he never got what he asked for, and then he was like, well, this doesn't work, and he quit on it. It was one of the things that made him want to quit on Christianity. But later on, when he becomes a Christian as an adult, when he really became a Christian, he realized that, as he puts it, praying is like looking into the face of God. And that's enough. And the way he puts it is, and if I get this right, is like instead of looking at the face of God, I'm like standing off to the side looking at what God's doing and wondering, you know, what are you going to do for me? I'm actually, instead of Looking at God, I'm analyzing what he's doing. And, you know, I think in some instances you can analyze what God is doing, but they're really few and far between. And in reality, can you? Maybe not. But what you can do in prayer is look straight at him. And then delight in prayer. And that made me think about this in a different way. Because for many, unanswered prayer caused them to quit on prayer. But then imagine if everything they asked for, they got in a, in a reasonable amount of time. Imagine that. Everything that we prayed for, we got, happened immediately. Right? We, I need a, a, a sooner appointment for my wife's procedure. I prayed for it. I get a call from Kaiser like 10 minutes later. By the way, your appointment's been moved up. I knew it. Every time I pray for something, it happens. I prayed for, you know, Roger to get healed and get back to church. Ten seconds later, here he is walking in. 
all healed up like a young man. Why? I say, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. Everything I pray for, I get. But it don't happen that way. If it did, why would I be praying? And I think for the same reason that causes people to quit on prayer would be the very same reason people would pray if they got everything that they asked for. They just want stuff from God. Whereas when here, when we have to persist and say to God, look, you're taking too long. I'm going to keep praying and praying and praying. And Jesus said here, it'll be done more quickly. I said, that doesn't make sense theologically. But perhaps, and I say perhaps, it's a way of getting of God getting us to pray enough that we start to actually enjoy just praying. Talking with God, seeing his face, knowing that he's hearing. And I'll be like, God, you know, if we could just chat a little while longer, I don't care if you do it. I just want to talk to you. How many Christians have a relationship with God like that? Few. Far too few. So, that last one, delay long. That's the same word. Hurrying God up. Get at him. Keep praying. But no, he may say no. But learn to enjoy it. Now, that kind of deviates a bit from what we're doing today. So, um, what patience is looking to the betterment of others, looking to considering their real needs, considering what's best for them, action or inaction, and when. And when that waiting actually gets in the way of my own desires, uh, agape ain't about self. And, I'm, and there's another word here that we're attached to this, which will come, is I'm, my faith is in God, my patience that is taking away from my self-desire, I have hope that God is going to fulfill in me you know, what it is. I mean, if, if I have to sacrifice and I don't get anything out of this, so be it. But what I am going to get out of this is a closer relationship with God. And that's what, I, that's what we really all should be after. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your patience. Your word is so full. It's so full of such precious truth. There's more of it than we could possibly imagine. And, and thank you, Father, that you have revealed it. May we, Father, see this word, patience, and apply it. Know that it comes from your love. It is not something that we can ourselves do. It is your life, your love. Through knowledge, through the Holy Spirit, may it mature in us so that we live in your love and be patient with all, with everyone, as you write in your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.